Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, traders. We are coming at you with the 76th episode of the Performante podcast. And boy, oh boy, is this a special one. We are officially PCC Bulls. That is our social token, the Performante community coin. And we just wanted to take some time to introduce it. We wanted to talk about how the launch has gone so far, our ideas moving forward, kind of what the outlook is for the project and how we're going to be developing it talks about the open market, our overall impression, and then we're going to open it up to the audience. We got three questions. I'll be checking it to see if we have any more. And uh, last but not least, touch on some news. So my name is Nathan. As always, Keith is with, with me, and I'll pass it on over for the first story. Thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. We're first going to be talking about the Chinese digital RMB. It has a pilot released on major mobile app stores, and they're definitely seeing the progression here. For the CBDC, they specifically cover Android and iOS versions for the digital Remimbi app, which was actually created and um, made by the digital bank or central bank digital currency research institute for China. So they're definitely seeing a lot of progression in their adoption usability of their application. I think they're probably one of the most adopted in terms of the central bank digital currencies. We talked about India. We talked about Russia. Also implementing central bank digital currencies and some of the nation states in the south, kind of um, in Jamaica, Jamaica, kind of like tropical areas there. But overall, we are seeing central banks adopt digital currencies as kind of the next step for them to be able to really utilize the monetary systems that they currently have. So big step in that forefront. Next thing we're going to be talking about is the airdrop mania that we've seen. There's been a lot of airdrops that actually have been turned out to be some pretty lucrative op- op- investment opportunities. Not really investment because you're not really, really putting anything in. But there also have been probably more than the actual successful airdrops. A lot of rug pulls as well as what we call honeypots. Basically, you can't ever sell. So although the price may be increasing, there is zero liquidity. So you will never be able to actually exit out of your position, no matter how high or low it goes. So definitely be careful out there. Understand what you are connecting to for your MetaMask wallet or whatever wallet that you're using for your extension, because there are situations where if you do connect to a website that's created by a bad actor, but that's created by scammers, uh, it could really be a detrimental thing to your wallet. So I always suggest being a little bit more diverse, like diversifying your wallet so you don't have a single wallet hold your entire portfolio for your coins that are held on a exchange or a extension instead of an exchange, sorry. So definitely be careful out there, but we do see a lot of airdrops coming in for really not all um, exchanges, but a lot of, I believe Ethereum network is used a lot for these. Um, but you do see a recent one called Year uh, that was subject to a honeypot, so no one could actually sell. So it's definitely out there. Be safe, everyone. Um, Nathan, do you have any tips or tricks or anything that you might um, have useful in terms of kind of understanding the risks involved with these, I guess you could say, potential rug pulls or airdrops? I feel like you never want to be the first chicken to cross the road, and it's best to do some DD on Twitter and at least have someone read the smart contract or actually claim their airdrop without all their Ethereum wallet uh, contents being stolen. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think one strategy that's kind of used on Twitter is just making a fresh MetaMask wallet, funding it with as much Ethereum as you need, and then claiming because it's kind of damage control in terms of 
the assets that they would be able to extract from your wallet if it was a bad contract. But at the end of the day, I feel like you kind of got to do some due diligence before you hit that connect wallet button. That's one of the potential downsides to this Web3 ecosystem that you're in is that as soon as you hit connect wallet and you begin to authorize transactions, uh, whatever is happening can be a bit black box if you're not familiar with the smart contract. And so to move on to our next story, it's pretty interesting. There was a bit of a hack at OpenSea uh, where $2.2 million in bored apes were stolen from one person's wallet which is like absolutely insane that person even has that many board apes. There's a total of 15 board apes and 15 mutant apes. Uh, and this person called it the worst night of his life. Uh, and the transactions were kind of frozen because of suspicious activity. And it's interesting to see that kind of OpenSea stepped in because they saw it as, uh, as like an opportunity for somebody to be hacked. And it's kind of anti-crypto. Uh, but ultimately, the person did still lose their apes. Uh, and another interesting metric within the same article is that the Bored Apes have crossed a billion dollars in total sales volume, which is honestly insane considering it's like a non-conventional JPEG and people <laughs> are buying and selling these, attending yacht parties, whatever it may be. But crossing the million dollar with a B is uh, quite the significant metric for this specific NFT collection. And so to kind of stay in note of the level ones, you could say, our, uh, one of our crowd favorites here in the Performante community discord is Solana. Uh, they did get DDoSed again. Ultimately, this is the fourth time the network has been shut down. And although it is being called the Ethereum killer, Solana has not been really performing as well as it is marketed to, per se. So there's one kind of central talking point that I think is important to mention is that the reason Solana is so attackable is because it is such an efficient network. It can handle so many transactions at such a cheap speed that it really these people who are attacking the network in some sense are stress testing it because doing this kind of broad spectrum spam transaction DDoS wouldn't be possible on the Ethereum network because of gas fees. And so it's for that reason that Solana is inherently more vulnerable is because it's a more efficient project. And I think there's some famous quote, like resistance is felt on the way to success. And so we've seen Solana rise up. We've seen it have an insane NFT ecosystem. DeFi is really flourishing on it. There's a lot of decentralized exchange and there's a lot of VC backing for this network. And it's definitely having some growing pains as it's still in beta but it's kind of suffering from its own success in some sense as people are spamming it with the DDoS attack. Any thoughts on that, Keith? Yeah, I kind of view it as with Ethereum, you're paying in terms of the gas fees and transactions fees, you're paying for the security of the network because I think that's kind of the only way to look at it because it's like theoretically, I guess, possible to DDoS Ethereum, but at this point you need billions of dollars in order to actually pay for the gas fees. So by Ethereum having high gas fees, it is a more secure network from a DDoS standpoint compared to things that are more easily DDoSable, I guess you could say, or e easily um, transactable, which then makes them easier to DDoS. So it's an interesting perspective because a lot of people are bashing Ethereum. We talk about it on our Discord a lot, talking about how the gas fees are so high and there's so many other layer ones that we could use, Solana, AVAX, Terra Luna, all these different ones. But at the end of the day, Ethereum is a beast in itself, and I think there is some merit to having higher gas fees because it 
creates a more secure network where you don't get as many DDoS attacks and you're going to have a higher uptime for the network because you're not going to have these people trying to really just completely take over. So it's pretty interesting. I think it's a thought-provoking question or at least a statement and um, we'll see how it goes. Ethereum did have DDoS attacks earlier on in its development, so it's not like Ethereum is immune to it. It's just at this point, the fees are so high that it wouldn't make sense or it wouldn't be justifiable to actually uh, potentially create a DDoS attack on Ethereum. So uh, it's, ha it's happened before. It's just at a point where Ethereum has matured to a point where it's kind of not feasible at this point. So it's really cool to see. Moving on to a little bit more news here, we're going to be talking about some PCC. Performance community culture for everyone who has been involved, we very much appreciate it. Uh, overall, it has been going phenomenally well in terms of the launch. The airdrops have been going really well, a lot of people are very excited. The meme competition is gaining significant traction for anyone who is listening who has created a meme. Thank you very much, they've been just a, a real joy to look at and, and watch them come into our, um, our our Twitter feed and, and in our Discord as well. Uh, some of them are like extremely either funny and, and one in particular I'm thinking of is a video that actually was like a creation someone made physically and like they set up wires and lights and um, very notable. Um, so yeah, just want to say thank you. It's been a really big pleasure just to talk about it amongst our community and it's just been creating a lot of interest in Twitter so overall it's been a huge success so far in terms of the meme competition it's still not over so it'd be interesting to see how that DAO community discussion will take place for the winner of that meme coin competition so if you haven't already definitely be sure to enter and yeah. kind of oh, oh sorry go on it's definitely been a wild ride trying to grow on Twitter. For a while, we were staying off of that platform, but now we've really adopted it. We're having a lot of fun with it, and we are excited to see how this meme competition develops. It closes January 31st, and I think next week sometime we will be having a DAO vote to decide are we having one winner, three winner, five winners, etc., etc., just to ensure that it is a community-centric decision. And we did have our first DAO vote where we are going to be focusing on product development, rather than gaining users. So we want to iron out our areas of expansion before we start growing the community aggressively. And another talking point here is we are going to have an NFT airdrop for all the day one users and adopters of our project. We want everyone in our community to have a custom profile picture. And uh, another component as we head into phase two. So phase one, we consider all about liquidity distribution. We're having these airdrops. We're looking to distribute the PCC that we have to you. And phase two of the project is where we, so to speak, stimulate the peer-to-peer -peer economy. And we really focus on gaining users, having users tip each other for alpha, investing tips, or even uh, one interesting extrapolation is what we call bounties. So for example, me and Keith, we hire programmers, we hire graphic designers, we've done some web dev. And so it's the kind of thing where we need these digital skills and it's it's no better way than to pay your friends for this kind of stuff, assuming they could do work or they do good work. And so we are looking to have people designate a target, an objective or a deadline that you want met. And hopefully people in the community will be able to rise to the challenge to meet it. Because within the context of the digital economy, I think everyone has a certain value proposition of what they're able to do uniquely. And so we want to be at the epicenter of that, where people are able to exchange in PCC 
on a peer-to-peer level to boost their own business activity. And one last talking point for PCC is that the open market will happen eventually. We are not in a rush to do it. We really want to incubate this. We really want to distribute liquidity. We want to build the use cases before we open it up on a DEX like SushiSwap or Uniswap. Uh, Just for obvious reasons, we want a very sound project. And as soon as you open this stuff up on a decentralized exchanges, the bots usually do come in. And so that is one thing to keep in mind because we're looking to play the long term here. We are not going anywhere. The best is yet to come. Overall, the project has been going really well and we are super happy with it. Um, But we're excited for what it will develop into. And so to move on to the final phase of the podcast, I got some questions from the audience. We have four in total as of right now. And I'll pass it on over to Keith for the first one about U.S. interest rates. Awesome. So uh, this one came in today. It was submitted by Granteja56. So hello, Granteja, for if you are listening. The question is, uh, goes like this. Ask a question for this podcast. When will the U.S. increase interest rates? And do you think this will directly affect the market and bring it into a bear market? So we actually talked about this yesterday in our podcast, and it's a really good question, and both Nathan and I have been talking about the end of this bull cycle, basically ending when interest rates rise, and the reason is uh, many factors, but the main factor is when there's increasing interest rates, it is harder for risk on assets to appreciate, bonds are actually going to generate some yield, so there is some level of appreciation that needs to take place before you actually make more than the bare minimum, which is like the bond rate itself. And that's why right now, because the bond rate is zero or it's basically zero, you're going to have basically everyone flooding into risk on assets. There's also a lot of money floating around in the system and just basically flooding the system because there is very low interest rates. Everyone's borrowing because it's so cheap to borrow. And if a lot of funds and a lot of companies have more cash, they're going to be investing maybe in other third party companies and integrating their system into theirs. Or when you have more money, you're going to invest and that's going to generate overall more return in the future because you're able to put more innovation into the company and grow it for cheaper. So overall, you're going to have things growing. Risk on assets are doing very well in a very low interest rate or a negative interest rate environment. And if you raise interest rates, it's going to be harder for businesses to borrow money, which then they can't invest back into the company. And it's harder for them to overall see that price appreciation because they're not going to have that ability to reinvest. So in short, the point at which we transfer into a bear market or it doesn't become as parabolic, like the NASDAQ S&P is absolutely ballooning right now because, in my opinion, of the low interest rate environment. When will they raise interest rates? That's a really big question because I don't think they will want to at any point. Since 2008, they've had very low interest rates. They did pick up a little bit and I think it went to like 2.4% or a little bit above 2.4% in the duration between the global financial crisis and COVID. Like 2015, 2016, they started to ramp it up, but but then uh, during COVID, they just brought it right back down to 0%. During that point, a lot of companies, a lot of people, even the government, they all borrowed a lot of money. So then they have a lot of debt to repay. And because interest rates are so low, they don't really need to pay a lot of that debt back and it could really inflate away. But then if they have to raise interest rates, their debt repayments are going to be substantially higher than they currently are right now. 
So that's going to be last case scenario. So it's kind of a, like the Fed literally is very transparent about this. It's a series of steps that they will take. The first step would be to remove all asset purchases from the market in order to combat inflation. Because the only reason that they would actually raise rates is if inflation is running too hot. So they'll do everything to try to manipulate, manipulate the CPI. They've already do that. But in terms of trying to combat this from what they can do, it would be to remove all asset purchases from the market. So then they're not adding more liquidity into the market, adding more cash into the pool of cash in the system. If that doesn't work and the CPI is still printing very high, only at that point will they raise interest rates. It's really something that is a last resort to them. And we will see the asset purchases in the open market diminish to zero before we see interest rate hikes or interest rate increases. So when will they raise interest rates? We will have to wait until the entire open market bond purchasing structure or framework is complete. They are purchasing no more assets, no more bonds on the market. At that point, then I would be starting to really worry if they're going to be raising rates. Keeping an eye on the FOMC meeting minutes is going to be important. But until we get that point where it, where there's no more capital injection into the system, I think it's full force ahead. Risk on environment is going to continue. But if we do get to that point where they are not purchasing any more assets in the open market, then we have to worry. Well said, a lot of good points there. Uh, ultimately, it's kind of once the interest rates change, the game of musical chairs stops. And so to move to the next question from K420, uh, just a quick one about BTC in Q1 2022. Do you think we see a decoupling of BTC price action and altcoin price action? So building what Keith said there with risk on assets, crypto and stocks pretty highly, highly correlated in a risk on atmosphere. And obviously, when those interest rates change, we do think that there will be a correlated move to the downside as we shift to a risk-off atmosphere. So I do expect Bitcoin to have a bullish Q1, um, basically bull market until the Fed says that's game over. Um, so Q1, I'm bullish. Start a Q2. It really depends on when the Fed rug pulls the U.S. and global economy. <laughs> because uh, when that happens the music will stop so like i said in the discord i'm probably going to start dollar cost averaging into cash assuming we are seeing the bullish q1 that we're expecting uh, because ultimately as btc rises the rest of the market's going to come with it and that's a good answer to the second part of the question talking about the decoupling of btc price action from altcoin price action i think during a bull market it's possible to see different trends i mean Chainlink, qnt there's a couple other notables that seem to do their own thing sometimes, but when the crypto market is dumping and Bitcoin's down like 5 10% or however much, usually the rest of the market comes with it. We all like to speculate that, hey, maybe there's some independent correlations and there's coins with their own behavior, but ultimately that is kind of the uh, trend that we're looking at where Bitcoin drops and the rest of the market comes with it. Because ultimately, you can always measure in all two ways. You can measure it in the USD value or the BTC value. And so both of those usually tank because people see BTC as the lower volatility alternative. Yeah. And so the, the last question from Jodder94, just assuming that we answered Palmod's question, do we have any key metrics that we could use to track interest rates hike? Or do you think we covered that already, Keith? Uh, I'd say it's well covered. Um, something that we haven't really touched on that I think is pretty important is the 
dynamic yield curve. If you have an inverting yield curve, we saw it in 2019 before COVID and in the 2007 range before the global financial crisis, we saw an inverted yield curve. Before the dot-com bust, we saw an inverted yield curve. And it's not like a, we have to take action tomorrow, this is imminent kind of indicator. It is a long-term indicator that is used to assess the I guess worry in the bond market because it's basically just comparing short-term bond yields to long-term bond yields. If short-term bond yields are yielding a higher amount than the longer-term bond yields, then there's some sign of worry, fear, uncertainty in the bond market, which is a pretty good indicator, clearly as we've seen in the last previous recessions, of potential worry to come. So that's going to be something that we're going to be looking at in terms of kind of the more global macro longer-term picture. But Really, the Fed has not total control, but a lot of the control. Like right now, it's like a Fed-driven economy or a Fed-driven market because really we're not following normal supply and demand uh, structures or frameworks or systems at this point. It is how much, how how willing is the Fed uh, going to go in terms of the capital printing or the proliferation of currency release, I should say, um, how far are they willing to go? That's kind of the big question because they are stuck between a rock and a hard place. They either have to print and print and print and devalue the currency and people will start to really realize the amount of proliferation that's occurring. That's obviously option one, not a great down, not a great road to go down. Option two would be to inevitably raise interest rates, not create a massive um, what we, no one really knows how, how hard the downturn is going to be, but that will definitely create a bearish market. That's almost certain. So they kind of have to choose between currency proliferation or a very bearish risk on market where stock markets go down, pension systems go down, lots riding on it. I don't think they'll be willing to do that. So the ease, like the uh, path of least resistance, I would say, would be to push on with the inflation train for as long as it can because a little bit of inflation is a lot easier to handle or an easier pill to swallow at least from my view than to have a absolutely crashing stock market because that's going to be a lot more impactful for people whereas if you get you know higher cpi prints people adjust the cpi every single year every other year so it's a little bit easier to um, kind of fake how bad things are. Whereas a stock market, you can't really fake how bad things are. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how they're going to be able to navigate that system there. And to, um, sorry, oh, go on. Oh, I just had a quick little one-liner. It's kind of like they have to choose between the dollar and the economy. They can't have both. Yeah. So uh, last question here, Geodder94. Uh, what are the risks of staking UST on Anchor? Do you think getting insurance is worthwhile? And so UST is kind of the stable coin of the Luna network and you can stake it on Anchor protocol. I think right now it's like 19.4%, something like that. And what's super interesting is you can get two kinds of insurance on it. The first kind of insurance is for smart contract vulnerability. So obviously with smart contracts, there's always that risk that, hey, maybe someone cracks the code and is able to exploit it. The second is dollar peg stability, so two kinds of insurance. And with dollar peg stability, it's when that $1 target becomes depegged, and I think it's effective around 87 cents that insurance claims can be filed. Um, and ultimately, with the dollar peg stability, you're paying around 1.9% premium 
on your reward and for smart contract vulnerability you're paying around 2.6 percent premium these are yearly rates for that peace of mind and that is one of the benefits to the luna network is that this is one of the first protocols or this is one anchor protocol is one of the first widely adopted protocols that allows insurance to come in for that yield farm and i think the ust ecosystem is gaining a lot of traction with kind of the boomer generation i mean i told my dad about how he can get 20 percent returns on stables and he just assumed it was a ponzi so i think within the world of traditional finance maybe we have a way to go but offering insurance on these kinds of products is a very intuitive uh, way to make an appeal to people on a more safe and conservative manner <clears throat> and just uh one last shout out here for Z Money. He did ask a question, but honestly, I do not think I fully understand uh, or am able to answer it properly. He asked, how does the change from wrapped memo, memo and time change the staking in time and the value of in time wonderland because they are porting the project uh, over to a different network. They're enabling it on a DEX and they're making a lot of major changes. And I, I read it last night at like 2.30 a.m and I have not revisited it since, so I do not think I have the most appropriate information to give you an informed opinion, but I promise I will get to it today, uh, and I'll drop some value in the Discord for those who are invested in Time Wonderland. And so I think on that note, it is a good place to leave the episode. Really appreciate everyone tuning in live, as well as listening post-production on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., we're having a lot of fun with the launch of PCC, and hopefully you are too. So I think we'll leave it there. Take care. Stay safe, everyone.